So, um, welcome to this Q&A or Q&R as I like to think of it as uh, through all of them. <laughs> Responding to your questions and and certainly thank you so much for all the questions. Um, we won't, we won't, we think we won't get, there were quite a few, so... Um, yeah, we've chosen a, fr a few, but um, yeah, I always feel like with the questions, even with the ones we respond to, and uh, as well as the ones we don't, that um, there's real value in asking the question, yeah, and maybe, um, you know, if it's a question that stays alive for you, then you can it can be a practice or you know it can be a question that you you bring up for yourself and others um, beyond this retreat so yeah so thank you and um, oh yeah so um, <laughs> it's like losing what a few marbles I have left no um, so just a couple of little announcements um this evening um during the beginning just a few minutes at the beginning of the last sit we will do a little chanting together so just want to let you know about that we'll just last a little while and then we'll spend most of the sit silently together and just also to mention tomorrow morning um, the schedule will be up after some point this evening but tomorrow morning is a little different from the last few mornings um, we'll meet in here for the first sit at 6.45 there won't be any morning exercise and then at 10 past 7 there will be a session with some uh, yeah, reflections about transition and closing and offering dana and then the coordinator a coordinator will be offering some practical advice so we ask please if everybody could be there uh, for, for 10 past 7 that would be very much appreciated okay thanks Thank you. so I'd like to start with the first question and um, Okay, so is it is it really okay to use the seat and the feet to focus on rather than the breath when practicing? I am unsure if my memory serves me correct. Yeah, so says um, so there's an asterisk. If is it really okay to use the seat, the feet, or just the body? Um, so I think the short answer to this is yes. And I think it's interesting because, you know, is it is it really okay to use, say in this case, the seat or the feet? Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Sampo. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Right. You still can you hear me? Is that better? Thank you, Sampo. Oh dear. I nearly fell at the last fence there. <laughs> okay so yeah 
and what I kind of tuned into partly when I when I read that question was that sense that can come up for so many of us in in different ways content in, in, in our practice am, am I doing it right or you know is this is this really okay or you know that there are so many ways aren't they and this week we've rather bombarded you with you know 59 different ways of <laughs> doing different things and and even so I think it, it you know I don't know if this is true for this questioner but sometimes I think that we will um, succumb to easily to a kind of what I think of as light doubt you know if it's like well should I you know do breathing maybe hmm, I don't know you know and then sort of the meditation you know and just get in there just feel your feet and stay with that and see what happens so again it's it's um so that the clarity and then the sense of you know being able to really give ourselves more and more fully to our practice whatever you know these different forms it can take at different times where we in a way take take the risk of learning learning by doing rather than learning by thinking about it <laughs> which is you know not to just blunder in unreflectively but so with this person I feel like um, I want to really encourage you know you know to go go for it um, because it, it, it you know and that sense of the hierarchy you know maybe it's like mindfulness of breathing is like the you know it's like what would you want to say it's like the queen or the king or something you know and oh you're off all lowly old feet you know it's a rather a lowly object of meditation is not quite so so again that how how much that measuring and that sense of a hierarchy can can creep in um rather than sort of really yeah giving ourselves to something that feels like it yeah makes some sense to us and then and then seeing seeing what what happens uh yeah did you want to add anything okay thank you So the challenge for us is to to answer some of these um, really wonderful questions uh, in a way that will leave time for other questions to be answered. So um, the next question is, can anger and compassion coexist? Can anger and compassion coexist? And... um, There's a lot to say there. Yeah. So again, short answer, yes. Yeah. The short answer is yes, they can. And I'm kind of going to touch on a few ways where that that can be there. So for example, we can be feeling anger and then having compassion towards ourselves in that place of anger. Yeah, does that make sense to people? Yeah, that that could be the case, that we're feeling anger and then we're aware of that anger. 
and we're aware of the painfulness of that anger and we bring compassion in. Another way that they could coexist is um, that we're feeling the anger and yet there's compassion um, and that um, alignment with or commitment to non-harming so we're not acting on it. Yeah, so the anger is there, but we're not ang acting from the anger. And that's coming out of compassion. Okay, so that's another, another way. And then, if we look at it more and more deeply, we can see that both anger and compassion are not kind of on-off kind of things, right? They're not black and white. Either they're there or they're not there. They both exist on a spectrum. So we could even be, you know, experiencing anger towards somebody or towards a situation that we're involved in or that exists in the world. And at the same time, there could be compassion towards even that same person. Yeah, because we can see the bigger picture of the situation. We're feeling compassion and we're still feeling that yeah, anger or, you know, on, on the spectrum, somewhere on the spectrum. And maybe one last really important point with that is that, you know, we use words like anger and a little bit like what we did with when we were exploring joy. We use that one word and it actually covers quite a range, yeah, quite a range of emotions, quite a range of responses to life. So it can be really worthwhile to see also what that anger um, actually is, yeah. So there can be anger that's, you know, very, uh, that's got a lot of enmity in it. Um, there can be anger that's very righteous, um, but there can also be anger that is really like just standing up against something which is harmful. Right? Does that make sense to people? So there's anger there, but that anger is not like a, it's not like a fire that's destructive, but it's a fire that gives us strength and comes actually from some compassion. Yeah, so... Again and again, our practice, our work, is to get to know yeah, the flavors, the detail of our experience, of the human experience. Yeah? So anger and compassion in that way can actually really be there at the same time. You know, when we just kind of really have that, that can give us the energy to just say, stop, yeah, stop. And a very simple example of that could be, you know, when we're seeing somebody about to harm themselves, yeah? You see a child getting really close to a fire. You're going to say, oh, can you please stop? Or is it going to be, stop, yeah? So, you know, we might not actually, yeah, it's not coming, and there will be some energy with that, yeah? And even more if we see somebody about to harm someone else. So... Yeah, a lot of interest in this and really going into the, um, the detail and getting familiar, getting familiar. Because that can really help us both kind of 
then attune with what is skillful, wholesome, and helpful in a situation. Yeah, and not shut down um, energies or aspects of ourselves that have um, have some integrity and power in them that can actually help us. Yeah, and this is, I don't know if you, this came with another related question. See, they're stapled together by me. I connected them, but um, I don't know if you want to add anything to what I just said. No, okay. So I'll just, can I, I'll do the related question, okay? Yeah. So the related question is, <laughs> I need to get permission here. Um, how can we manage conflict yeah, interpersonal conflict with others whilst practicing compassion to ourselves um, but also remaining assertive. Okay, And this refers a little bit to something Caroline mentioned which was that practicing metta does not always um, mean being nice. So it's, it's a little bit related to the previous question or a lot related to the previous question um, so in those situations of of conflict really having a sense of self-care and self-compassion um, that from which there's also kind of an ability to really be clear yeah and say no and we can be clear and say no with a lot of compassion yeah with a lot of compassion again if we think about um, interactions with children that becomes really clear how important that is isn't it yeah to be really clear not always you know always just being nice is not actually very helpful and we're all children so we all need this yeah that balance of you know really seeing what is skillful really seeing what is supportive which sometimes includes saying no yeah, sometimes includes saying not now, sometimes includes saying, you know, not with me. <laughs> yeah, whatever that is, whatever that is. And in all these situations of, of, of any kind of conflict, um, keeping that flow, and we, we were touching on it in some of the practice, the flow of the compassion of really letting, you know, seeing what's arising, seeing how it's affecting me. Yeah, letting the compassion go towards myself when it's needed, go towards the other person, or sometimes towards the situation um, when it's needed. So there's a real, real kind of flow there. It's very dynamic. Would you like to add, please? Um. Um, I don't know quite which Brahma Vihara this is connected to, maybe it's equanimity, but um, I think often in a situation of conflict, um, 
I think there can be just a lot of uh, uh, fear, fear arising, you know, which I think is, is, you know, sometimes perhaps not so obvious as maybe the anger and this kind of thing. But I think when I, mm, to acknowledge the fear, I mean, of the fear of disconnection, you know, which I think is such a, a fundamental fear for a human being that that conflict or disagreement or it is you know has is necessarily kind of destructive of relationship and connection and um, that it, it, it need not be and I think that practicing training over to maintain a sense of of connection in the in the midst of conflict um, can really help to to counter the fear and that that can but just really yeah kind of take over and cloud or you know sort of uh, inhibit our potential so perhaps it's you know not trying not to be afraid but just being really really aware of that level of it that the, that that fear of of disconnection, which I think is so um, so profound and so yeah, so there in 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 any conflict. So that's just something. Bad. Right. Okay. So um, yeah, this follows on a little bit. Um, could you please say more about the close enemies of Brahma Viharas? And so Zohar was just yeah mentioning this, I think really helpful uh, in our in our practice and in our in our sense of how do we um, foster this this quality of meta and the other ones. So again, I think in terms of yeah, what isn't so obvious, maybe like anger. These more subtle, maybe forms, sometimes masks or, um, yeah, quasi or a bit like or, yeah, the the uh, often I think more connected with the persona, you know, that sense of an image or a, a mask or a sense of it's actually being used as a defense rather than as a connection. Um, and I, I think that that is cuts us off, and 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 yeah, it, it's a defense thing. It's actually in some ways more isolating. So we're you might you know politeness, um, placating, these kinds of behaviors perhaps more familiar to some of us than others, but you know really really common perhaps amongst many many people. And when you want so much to connect. That um, <laughs> you know, the, the the that that impulse or that intention can really easily sort of slide into to going along with uh, you know agreeing when you don't really you know a whole range of things which again it really connects with the other question avoiding conflict we're actually undermining the connection which I think is really interesting. 
Oh, I, I mean, I'm definitely a conflict avoider temperamentally. And I just have had one or two experiences, maybe you've had this, of moving towards, like really moving towards somebody, again, appropriate time and place. And always with that very strong intention to to connect and I can remember one occasion where it was really quite, it was quite transformative and there was so much fear there was so much yeah all kinds of not very helpful things going on so meta the clothes these these niceness you know this has been mentioned um so I think this is quite a deep inquiry and in relation to ourselves I find that an interesting area is to you know, I think it can sometimes slide into self-indulgent. Oh, I'll just be kind to myself and, you know, go and whatever it is, dot, 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 fill in the blank, you know. Have some chocolate, yeah. <laughs> and, um, or uh, sort of, oh, well, you know, yeah. It's, it's like letting yourself off the hook because, yeah, you know, it's a bit scary to go and do that. And you just be nice to, you know, kind of because you're, you're being compassionate towards just I mean, if I, you know, I don't know about you, if, if I really followed that, I wouldn't, don't think I'd got out of bed since the age of 25. Or something, you know? um, <laughs> just, you know, feel the fear and do it anyway. Um, <laughs> so close enemy close close you know compassion often um it's described as you know as pity so yeah, i think that's a very very helpful thing to one of the you know perhaps reactions to an encounter of pain suffering and and uh even with ourselves self-pity you know you know oh, poor me oh poor me <laughs> and then towards the other you know, it can even be quite subtle or unconscious at a sense of looking down. Oh, poor you. You know, that must be so hard for you over there, down there, you know, some distance away from me. I'm so glad I'm not suffering like that. <laughs> yeah, so so again, kind of exaggerating slightly just to, again, sort of um, expose that. Because I think, again, if you can hear, it's like that's quite disconnecting, actually. It's a distancing. Um, so um, that's that one. So mudita is sometimes, I found this very interesting. Again, these are all, in a way, inquiries rather than answers. It's like um, vicarious pleasure, you know, which different from gladness for the other's Happiness or well-being, vicarious pleasure. It's interesting. I, I think that's worth worth uh, sort of seeing. I'm just trying to think of it, an example. So we can be happy for someone, you know, in, enjoying something, but then they can almost, I don't know, that thing where, you know, you start sort of sliding in there going, yeah, that's great, isn't it? And you, yeah, I remember when, and, oh, I'd love to be there, or I was there last year, or, you know, can you can you hear? It's like it's got a kind of stickiness and a kind of, you're getting in there and kind of like, you know, on the <laughs> and you get some, something out of that, yeah. Rather than just like what feels like a more, um, yeah, maybe non as sticky or non 
uh, suction orientated, <laughs> like, yeah, happy, which feels to me often feels like it kind of goes like that, you know, rather than like that. So, so. And agitated excitement, you know, I, I, uh, I once I watched, uh, I don't know whether to mention anyway, I'll mention it, a TV show that I really loved. And um, there was a scene at the end of one of the series, one of the things, where a, a person was very, very happy, really overjoyed, overjoyed because of the birth of a child. It's really sad, actually. I just I felt like such a teaching for me. But I, and he he drove in the car to go and inform and fetch other members of the family. And he was so overcome with the happiness that he didn't drive very carefully, and in fact uh, crashed into a, another vehicle and was killed. So I hope that's not too dramatic for you. No, I don't know. It stayed as a sort of teaching for me. I remember a less dramatic example of this. Sorry, I'm going on a bit about this. One more, and then I'll. Okay, um, I was doing walking meditation once on retreat in the Hermitage wing on the back stairs. There are these back stairs, and I just had this thing. I did it in the dark. I just kind of enjoyed it. I go and I just like hang out doing walking meditation slowly on the stairs and I misjudged the number of stairs going down <laughs> and I just you know jolted and really really wrenched my knee and <laughs> was in bed for a couple of days so you know you get what I'm talking about right maybe you've had that so I just think that's another interesting in terms of the gladness and the happiness and the just sort of having what have, what have I lost a bit of mindfulness of the what was actually happening there. So anyway, um, so near enemy of Upeka, um, I think this has come up really again in difference. Again, it's a lot to do with disconnection, isn't it? Actually, like with the car accident and and um, you know, again, not that accidents don't happen, they do. So I don't mean to imply fault or blame at all. Um, although when I fell down the stairs, I did rather blame myself. <laughs> but um, not a very helpful thing to do. Um, so this indifference, you know, this sense of um, kind of being distant from the coolness of it somehow, you know, without quite realizing we've, we're, we're separate and distant so I think that's an interesting one to to notice and I think for those of us who have a tendency to be over involved and over entangled with with say relationships then the coolness of 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 equanimity can sometimes feel like oh it's a bit wrong or you know maybe it's not good but it doesn't necessarily mean indifference it's just not what we're used to right so being connected and close and responsive and steady. It's like it can be calm, it can be cool, it can be, yeah? I think for some of us that's a very, very important thing that we think if we care about people we have to suffer. And, yeah, so, and be upset. And that somehow to not be upset means we don't care. So question that one. All right, stop, Caroline. Okay, stopping. 
keep going, Caroline, keep going. Okay, so that actually, um, that last bit leads very well to the next question, which is, how do we get the right balance between self-care and caring for others? And I think that last uh, bit that Caroline spoke about the equanimity and that kind of um, very, very common feeling we may have or idea that we may have that in order... Uh, that caring about others or being useful for others means that we need to suffer in some way or sacrifice. Yeah, And it may sound extreme when I say it that way. But so much of the time it's like, no, I'm not really doing any enough for someone else if I'm not paying some kind of price or really feeling it. So that's kind of, I wasn't playing, planning to say that in response, but it just really flows on. Um, very well from that last point. So first of all, kind of sometimes seeing, is that there? Is that part of what's um, happening um, in that process of being there for someone else, caring for someone else? And what can be really helpful in my experience um, is to really see the interconnected nature yeah, to bring that in when, uh, when we're in that place of offering support, caring, sharing. Yeah, to see that interconnection and that we ourselves are part of that network of life. Yeah, so if we're not looking after this aspect of life, this part of life, this manifest- manifestation of life, we're actually not... Um, yeah, we're not looking after the whole. And also really seeing that in order to be of service, in order to be of support, uh, we need, you know, we're a vehicle for that and we need to look after that vehicle. Yeah, we need to also look after this body, this heart, this mind, so that it can be of service. And maybe the most important thing to say about this is um, that this is a process yeah, it's like everything else. It's a process and it's a practice. If we can see it as a practice, part of our practice, if we can see it as a pra- as a process, um, it can feel more challenging at times, but it allows us to keep moving with what is appropriate at the time. Yeah, there's no kind of fixed ratio. <laughs> yeah, which I you know I think we would all love to find, wouldn't we, for kind of everything? Oh, this is the right way to do it and I just need to you know get the settings right and then I can just coast along life and you know it's it's it's, it's just what we wish for and, and not at all kind of putting that down but actually what happens if we see okay this is a process and I need to attend to all the conditions that are at play so sometimes I will be more resourced and I'll have more energy and I can do more and at other times um I need to shift that focus of care and compassion and to feel the flow, yeah, to feel the flow happening. And I think I said this at some point, um, this can be really difficult to do when you're working within a system, yeah, which isn't supportive of that. It can be really difficult to do, but it's essential. Yeah, and if you're working with that kind of system, then you know that it's essential. Otherwise, we get burnout. Yeah, in all its manifestations. 
So remembering we're doing this, yeah, we're the self-care as part of the care for others. Yeah, part of the care for others. And um, and that can actually kind of bring in a motivation sometimes, you know. I'm, I, I'll give you an example for, for myself. I really don't like to exercise. Yeah, really don't like it. Never have, you know, don't like it hate it um and yet luckily for me i teach some retreats which are walking retreats <laughs> so, um you know backpacking retreats and they give me some motivation to kind of exercise because if i won't then i'll be kind of the one at the back really struggling um and i'll be really exhausted so i won't be able to support people yeah so actually that sense of caring for others gives me the motivation to also care for myself yeah in a kind of like twisted kind of backwards way and we can really bring that in yeah we can really bring that in okay having a good diet taking time to meditate nourishing myself yeah is not a selfish thing it's really looking after me so I can serve others, yeah, I can support others and, and bringing that in as a, which sometimes would mean again, if we're working with other people, if we're working within a system, we have to say no some of the time with whatever that entails, yeah. So it's again a real, a real practice. Um, but yeah, just to kind of maybe highlight the, the, the really important points, seeing it as a process, yeah, seeing it as a practice, seeing ourselves as part of that network of condi conditions um, that need to come together. Our own well-being is a part of the network of conditions that need to come together in order to support others. So I'd like to um, address a, a question which is um, quite long. I'll just read it to you we weren't sure it's slightly uh, slightly but it, it feels very it felt important so we'll just bring it in on the subject of impermanence can you tell us what the buddha other teachers have to say on facing death how does one maintain equanimity while contemplating one's inevitable demise or non-being or as heidegger poignantly put it the impossibility of the possibility of being when I engage in this task as more than a merely intellectual level, which has been the case increasingly recently, I am aware of a great terror. Relinquishing clinging to being is no easy endeavor, it would seem. So, yeah, here it is, our mortality, death, aging, sickness happening in this room. You know, it's with us, isn't it? It's, um, I, I feel like we haven't touched on it really in this retreat, so I wanted to take, you know, this question as an opportunity to, to bring it in and really appreciate the, the question and it's it's really central to our practice, isn't it? Because it's so central to our life and our existence as as mortal creatures. 
And I just very, you know, this could easily be a whole talk, a whole retreat. So I wanted to touch on the wonderful practice from the Buddha that he recommended five topics for frequent recollection. So here's another practice to add to the list. But I've been practicing with it on and off over recent years and have found it very, very helpful. And I also feel like, like when I read the question, I often feel like just naming it, you know, just here we are sitting together, having been created a community together this week, and to be able to, you know, even in a small way, to acknowledge that to ourselves together individually, and to really feel that as part of the field of compassion, part of this field of our common humanity, you know, and that it is part of what we're called on to, you know, to deal with, isn't it, in our life? And again, with compassion, how can I learn? How can I, can I take the opportunity when this presents itself in my life, you know, either my own condition or in others, that to, to let it be an opportunity for the arising of tender concern. And so I think... In terms of responding to the questioner, I think bringing the compassion practice to this is very, very relevant. And to do, do that repeatedly, you know, over time, to talk with friends. And the these topics, are, if you look on Dharma Seed, you might find them called the five topics for daily recollection. And there are teachings on there from me and others describing that practice. And I, I've, I really, I mean, I, yeah. At first, it was really, really hard. You get, you get these phrases like, "I am of the nature to get sick." Like, thanks, you know. I am of the nature to grow old. Yeah, right. I am of the nature to die. You know, and this, I am not exempt from death. And everything, everything that is dear and lovely, dear and beloved to me will change and vanish. <laughs> so I don't know, yes, yeah. But actually I've found through practice and reflection and and teaching and sharing about this that it can really help. It can it's um something about the aligning the mind, aligning the heart with what is true is actually really empowering almost you know i remember sometimes i talk about this in the hall or this other halls and and sometimes a yogi will say or write and it's say it's such a relief to have it named yes you know, like yeah and i found this in practicing with these i found my own you can imagine i've sort of very just sort of translated them into my own and somehow something that felt a bit more palatable but I, I I really if you have an interest and maybe the for the question it would be one way of, of a sort of reflective or meditative practice um, that you know could be a support and to to uh, the Buddha says in in one sutta it's like you know this helps to um, helps us to um, counter or um, what's the word, um, sort of um, 
sorry, I can't, can't think of the word, but that we have these beliefs, like an ingrained belief or unconscious belief that we're going to live forever. He calls it, yeah, intoxication with youth or life or health. You know, it's like just probably there's some kind of, you know, evolutionarily useful thing about ignoring it, like, you know, but to to live as if, you know, we're, we're not. And then when we do get sick, you know, when we do realize we're aging and falling to bits and other people are, we get so shocked. I mean, it's kind of ludicrous on one level, isn't it? You know, it's all around us and then, you know, it happens to me or it happens to my loved one. It's like, you know, well, you know, I mean, this is not news really on one level. But so I just really commend this practice if you if you have interest that I just found it very helpful and a way of um, also um, I think it's really connected with joy as well in the preciousness of life. I think that's another great gift of this practice, isn't it? All the practice we've been doing here this week the presence, the mindfulness, the, all of these qualities and the sense of the precariousness of life, the fragility. You know, we really don't know we're going to make it till tomorrow, actually. And we don't really know whether we're going to make it to the next breath, actually. So taken in one way, this can also be a, a, a powerful, powerful support to living in the present, you know, to to living wholeheartedly, um, to all that we've been talking about this week. Uh, yeah. So maybe that is that a good place to stop? Actually, is <laughs> that not? Do you want to do another one? I'll just look at the time. Okay. So we won't end with death. We will continue. So, um, next question is, can you speak about what is happening in Myanmar, the actions of Buddhists, even monks, against Muslims? I feel very disturbed by this, and I'm not hearing much from Buddhist circles about it. Thank you. So... I share the sense of being disturbed and um, for me and I think for anyone who reads the teachings it's quite clear that that violence um, is really not in accord with the teachings, with the practices and it can be incredibly distressing to particularly see that sort of violence 
coming, you know, from people that, you know, seem to embody the teachings and are um, practicing them. And, you know, I can say for me particularly just the fact that on Sang Sukhui is not speaking out against that is, is, is very painful. Yeah, it's very painful. But it's also um, an opportunity to really attune to our own sense of integrity. Yeah. So the Dharma, the teachings, are not in anybody else. Yeah. Doesn't matter what robes they're wearing, doesn't matter how inspiring they've been, yeah, doesn't matter. The Dharma is in us, yeah, and we really need to listen to our own sense of right and wrong and to feel um, empowered to speak, yeah, empowered to speak. I would certainly say that I don't know any, any Dharma teacher who in any way is ambivalent about what is going on in Burma. So, you know, I think that's very, very clear. So our own authority and recognizing the the kind of the humanity in everyone, which means that hatred and greed and aversion and ignorance can take root. Yeah, they can take root. That is possible, especially, and we see it again and again in in societies, especially when there's a um, both a history of oppression and a kind of group energy that's building up. Yeah, you can say group insanity that's building up. Um, so yeah, I think very clear, no. Yeah, very very clear, no. And very, very clear sense of your own sense of what is right and wrong. And there are so many, unfortunately, examples of situations like this. Yeah. Whether interpersonal or communal. Um, where we need to speak out. We need to speak out. Not as Buddhists, particularly, um, but as human beings. Yeah. As human beings that are, yeah, clear about integrity and about ethics. Yeah, so I'd also just like to add my, yeah, add my voice to Zohar's in everything she's just said about, about that. Um, difficult to, I think, find a way of responding to that and maybe to many things in the world and in our lives in a way or in ways which are based on um, 
come from compassion, from wisdom, and that do not add, that do not add to, you know, the hatred, um, the anger, the confusion. So for me, that's a real practice, to be able to respond, to participate, but to, yeah, really discern how to do that in a way which is not uh, fueling uh, what is, yeah, what is unhelpful. So, yeah, so um, it does seem, uh, I think, yeah, we, we will stop there on that somber note. And thank you so much for your questions. So sorry we didn't get to more and really appreciate your listening and your offering and hope these reflections are, are of some, some use, some support.